Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas, this is Eric Seligman, your host, with co-host Manuel Castaneda dialing in from Oregon. Stories of Communism 41, In Search of Used Toothpaste. The memoir we're looking at today is especially interesting to me, as I actually know the author. We worked in the same department at a large company for many years. The book is called I Tried by Romanian immigrant J.U.C. Sudo and assembles many darkly humorous anecdotes about life growing up in the final decades of Romanian communism. Unfortunately, he and I were always on different projects at work, so I never chatted with him about non-work stuff. But his book is an amazing and entertaining read. While we see many themes common in this type of memoir, he really shines a light into many details of Romanian life that might surprise you. Of course, one dominant theme throughout the book is the scarcity of consumer goods, pretty much universal wherever socialism or communism has been implemented. I was especially amused by his struggles to obtain a round soccer ball. We started playing soccer. Frana, the Romanian kid who lived in an old, broken-down house in the neighborhood, got hold of a rubber ball. It was not exactly round. Actually, it had a giant egg shape, but it was good enough. We played on the street for hours until late in the night. I wasn't very good at soccer. I was usually chosen as a player in the last round, but I didn't mind as long as I could play. Kosar, a heavyset kid slightly older than me and a good friend of Frana, approached us one afternoon. Have you seen the new ball? he asked. What new ball? They just got a new ball at the sports store and it's made of real leather. Really? How much does it cost? I asked. 82 lei, Kosar replied. I made a quick mental calculation. That was about five times more than the yearly toy budget my parents spent on me. No way my parents could pay for a ball. One day, he thinks he's found the solution when he sees a poster about the local infestation of carabas bugs. These were a major pest, so the local government put up a bounty to try to encourage public help. Anyone who turned in one kilogram of carabas wings would get a free soccer ball. Sadly, after many weeks of insect hunting by Sudo and his friends, they only had about 100 grams of bugs and never did get their ball. More serious than sporting equipment, though, was the food situation. My father used to tutor students after hours for as long as I remember. Our tiny apartment was frequently visited by high school students needing extra attention and tutoring. My father used to teach them for free for years. But now that food shortages were getting worse, he was tutoring for food. Whenever I went to a food store, the typical scene was empty shelves, save for the occasional bean cans. When there was food, the lines would wrap around the building four people wide. The food stores were in the most dismal state. The typical scene was an overweight woman clerk sitting on a stool, disgruntled, showing no desire to help the underweight comrades visiting her store. In a meat store, shelves would be empty, the refrigerator would be running full power, behind the glass display lay the hooves of a pig and next to it a bare bone. Behind her, on the wall, empty steel hooks. In a milk store, it was equally empty, save for the occasional yogurt bottles. If it was a grocery store, same thing, mostly empty, except a few expired cans of dill pickles and refried beans. When these stores would get occasional food delivery, the news traveled fast around our little town. People would rush to the store with empty bags and form huge lines. They had no idea what food would be available at the store, but anything was better than nothing. Sudo and his friends somehow managed to look on the bright side of things and keep up their sense of humor despite their lack of material comforts. For example, he discusses the relative freedom he and his childhood friends had to roam about the neighborhood without adult supervision. One of the few advantages of living in communism was that kidnapping did not exist. We didn't even have a word for that. How and why would anybody steal a child? How would one feed that child? 
Where would the kidnapper hide that child? All apartments were tiny and the walls were thin. Neighbors knew everything about everybody. Gossip was rampant. There were no secrets. This came with the freedom of roaming around as a child. And, of course, there were the jokes, as in this example, where a traveler tried to lift his neighbor's spirits on a horribly overcrowded bus. He spoke up with a high-pitched voice, almost shouting that filled the entire bus. It is 200 meters long. Passengers, startled, turned their heads his way but couldn't see him. He was surrounded by taller folks. It is three meters wide, he continued, shouting towards the ceiling of the bus to give his voice the best chance of reaching all corners. It undulates. Now his voice was booming, folks were listening with surprise. Though it's not moving, neither forward nor backward. But then I could hear in the timbre of his mezzo-soprano voice that this was going to end up being a joke. And it is vegetarian. What is it? He posed the question. An anaconda? Came a female voice from the front of the bus. No, a line at the meat store. Another issue Sudo often touches upon is the local government's stewardship of the environment and public resources. Despite the claims of excellence in these areas, the local citizens of Romania observe quite the opposite. Wow, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to have drinkable, clean water right here in our backyard? So I won't have to go anymore to stand in line for hours at the bottom of the hill, a 15-minute walk there with empty buckets, and a long, tiring walk back with the full buckets, following an hour-long standing in the line at the only potable water source that came down the hill, the last part of the city that was not polluted. They built the big pig farm upstream at Bonchita, and that ruined everything. The river got full of pig poop and carcasses. We could no longer drink the water from the river. Then the factories came in Apahita and Somaseni and Cluj. Now the whole waterbed is poisoned. True, our tap water, that came from the Zamos River. It looked like urine, taste of pig poop combined with phosphorus, nitrates, and heavy metal. We could only use it for washing and bathing. The Romanian train cars emptied their toilets directly down onto the tracks. There was a sign in the bathrooms asking comrades not to use the toilets while the train was stopped in stations, but nobody paid attention. When a comrade had to go, the comrade went. As a result, the railroad tracks had the highest concentration of human manure in the whole desert, a straight line of putrid fertility cutting across the barren landscape. Weird plants would pop up from the middle of the tracks, enjoying the unusually high level of fertilizers engulfing the crushed rocks of the ballast. Some weeds would grow a foot a day, much to the station chief's dismay, who were supposed to keep their little kingdom clean and tidy. Since power tools for gardening did not exist, they would send out a poor guy to walk along the poopy tracks and try to whack down the thick weeds with a hoe. I was thinking that if they'd build railroad tracks crisscrossing the Sahara Desert and give free rides to the Romanian comrades, eating the same crappy food that we, the camp workers, got, pretty soon they would revegetate the desert. Maybe even animals would reappear. Never underestimate the climate-changing potential of 20 million proletarians with diarrhea. One of the scarier parts of the book, at least to a Western reader, is Sudo's discussion of the time he and his friends were volunteered to spend a summer effectively as slaves in a labor camp, helping to dig a canal desired by the local government. The principal looked like a wild boar. He had a big face, heavy drooping eyelids, a thick neck, and a sizable belly. Those who had big guts were either a leader of the Communist Party or worked at a gas station or at a factory that had something to do with food. They could get access to food. The rest of us were all thin. Pupils, he started his speech. We got an order from Bucharest. All of you will be sent to the Danube Canal for three months to do volunteering work. There was a murmur in the ranks. 
In line with our communist values, we only need to contribute to the construction of our bright future, he carried on. You'll be helping to connect the Danube to the Black Sea. It is your duty as a communist youth, he continued sternly, to help build our bright future. The country needs your help, so you must go. If we ignored the fact that we had hardly any food, we had no freedom to travel, no freedom of speech, no access to imported foods or books or magazines, and that we were about to leave on a treacherous three-months-long forced labor camp in the desert, life was not that bad, after all. Our work week and school week were six days long. You can't build utopian communism with just five days of work a week. But on the seventh day, we couldn't rest. We had to go stand in line for food and fetch drinking water from the nearby hill. Naturally, the officials in Bucharest did not select high school students from their district because that must have meant that some of their own sons had to come and bust the rocks in the hot sun. Instead, they picked the most underrepresented areas and schools in the country. Breakfast was 6 a.m. We were given some brown goo made with a combination of potatoes, cabbage, carrots, and some pork cartilage, oiled into a semi-homogeneous paste. It was very bad. Occasionally, we'd find rock pieces in it that chipped our teeth. When we found one, we'd smack it into the only window of the cafeteria. The thought was that if the rock is big enough to break the window, we could then argue with the camp captain that if they only had smaller pebbles in our food, the window pane would not have shattered. Pseudo also discusses several run-ins with the celebrated free health care system that communist governments generally provide. In one case, his sister has a wart on her eyelid that needs to be removed. My parents were worried and took her to the doctor, who offered to remove it by surgery. My father, though, smelled alcohol in the breath of the surgeon during their consultation. He was worried that the surgeon would botch the procedure and permanently damage my sister's eye. My father tossed and turned in his bed, then got up at 3 a.m., took out a brand new razor blade, disinfected it with boiling water. Then he sat at the edge of my sister's bed, pinched her eyelid with his left hand, turned it inside out, then with one precise motion, sliced off the wart. The wound healed perfectly. Another unpleasant incident occurs when Sudo goes for urgent dental care during the summer at the labor camp, after he's finally managed to convince his superiors to give him an afternoon to get treated. Good day, comrade, I greeted her. I have a big pain in my tooth, I said, pointing at my lower left jaw. What are you, a student? Yes, I replied, I am from the camp. I don't work with students or soldiers, she replied and turned away. They have no money. I stood there for a while, then exited the office. I had nowhere else to go. I slumped down on the pavement. Medical care was officially free in Romania. Theoretically, you could have walked into any medical office anywhere in the country and requested treatment for no money. In practice, though, things were different. There was no appointment system. You just showed up at the hospital or clinic just to join a crowd of people waiting there for hours. If you had money, you could discreetly hand an envelope to a nurse that would allow you to be seen ahead of the rest of the comrades. And once the doctor saw you and treated you, you were supposed to hand them yet another gift either cash, American cigarettes, or coffee. Poor farmers, with no access to any of the three items mentioned, would show up with a live chicken, a live piglet in a burlap bag, or a dozen eggs individually wrapped in the daily newspaper. I had nothing to offer to the lady dentist, and she knew it. Neither the students nor the soldiers were paid any money. We were expected to build our country out of youthful enthusiasm and the belief in a utopian future that our president kept promising us. I knocked on the door and stepped inside, was moaning from pain, holding my jaw. Again, she waved me out of the office. I went outside and slumped on the pavement. Years of standing in line taught me to survive the heat and cold and endless hours of doing nothing. Just like most Romanians, who could easily endure ten hours of standing in line with no food, no drink, no bathroom breaks, no talk, just standing and hoping that at the end they'll get something. 
potatoes or eggs or maybe frozen chicken wings. Eventually, after finishing with all her paying, or should we say bribing clients, the dentist takes pity on Sudo and fills his tooth after all, but she may not have put her full effort into it. Years later, I had an x-ray done, and the radiologist told me that he could see a piece of broken drill bit buried deep inside the root of the molar. I guess this is my version of body piercing. One of the most surprising aspects of Sudo's memoir is his ambition to work as a ski instructor. He went to school for computer engineering, which you would think should be a well-paid and prestigious job. But in such a closed society, the most desirable jobs were the ones that would give you access to foreign people and their consumer goods. In addition, as Sudo describes it, the remoteness of the mountaintops allowed a pleasant escape from the usual politics of life in Romania to some degree. What happened up in the mountains was strictly merit-based. You could not even attempt to bribe any of the senior ski instructors in charge of training and selecting the new instructors. We had to be at the top of our game to make the cut. What happened down in the city was a totally different thing. I had to bribe a series of officials at the factory I worked at so they would let me leave my job as a computer scientist for three and a half months. They had no official way of doing that, but they somehow got creative once they saw the bag full of Western goods I would gift to their wives. Being a ski instructor at that time in that place was the best thing that happened to me in Romania. I could finally utilize my skills as a skier, a teacher, a guide, and in the process, learn languages, make new friends, learn about life in the West. If they asked whether we were happy, we had to say, of course, we're happy. If they asked us how communism is working out for us, we were supposed to say, great. Of course, everybody knew what the reality was, but we tried to avoid these topics, especially in a setting with others around. Secret police informants were everywhere, especially where Westerners were present. When I was with my team in the deep forest, pristine snow all around, out of hearing distance from anybody else, I would tell them the truth, but only to those that I trusted. Due to the state of life in Romania, even minor items obtained from foreigners would be treated as valuable treasures. He said he gathered all the used toothpaste tubes from the team, just as I requested. Toothpaste, even if it came in used tubes, was a strong currency I could use down in the city. The communist teeth were decaying rapidly. Everybody was eager to get a hold of British or German toothpaste tubes. Sudo lost his coveted position as a ski instructor, though, when the Romanian secret police contacted him and demanded that he start acting as an informant and writing reports. He refused, and they were furious. They immediately arranged to take away his ski privileges and were likely to create further difficulties in his life. Luckily, immediately afterwards, the revolution began that took down Ceausescu, so Sudo and his family were spared any further consequences. He nicely summarizes the situation of his nation under communism. We were all miserable, hated the government, the lies, the censorship, the cult of personality, the lack of decency, the lack of empathy, the decades-long shortages, the apathy and pessimism that all of us infused into our country, a country with a beautiful geography, beautiful people, mountains, rivers, fertile lands, forests, the Danube, the Black Sea. If God would design an optimal country, it would be Romania. Smack in the main path of east-west trade routes, with good climate, no natural disasters, no plagues, a literate and quite educated population with hard-working people. Life could have been good, people could have been happy, different nationalities could have peacefully coexisted as they did for centuries. But it was not so. The most corrupt and dictatorial government shrouded Romania, 
and sucked the life out of it. Fortunately, the book has a happy ending as Sudo finishes with the discussion of the revolution that ended communist rule and his eventual emigration to the United States. Well, it is incredible, an incredible story because he basically repeats what we already know what happens when communist governments take over. Uh, they make people miserable. They make their lives miserable. They control them. And more than anything, the first thing that happens is that you start having shortages of everything you use. Your daily needs are limited to whatever is available on that day or whatever the government has to provide, which is pretty sad, but uh, ultimately, one big part of the story for me is knowing that foreigners play a big role into um, changing people's lives in those countries. So while we sometimes have embargoes against countries like, let's say, Cuba, where the government sometimes says, we don't want you to go visit Cuba. Uh, it could be a, a negative for the people who live there because they are counting on foreigners bringing news to them, bring, bringing ideas and goods. And it's, 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 I see it in um, many of the stories that we have covered that having that contact with the outside world is important to them. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point because, you know, a lot of times we're skeptical of trying to engage with communist countries because if we send tourists there and participate in a minimal amount of trade with them, it is in some sense supporting that system, right, and helps to prop it up. But on the other hand, you're right, as we saw in this story, and even previously, like in the story of uh, Theodor Flanta, also from Romania, it's that little bit of contact with foreigners that sort of enabled them to, to break free of the controls of their country and really think differently and, and eventually escape. Yes, and as much as we don't have a perfect society here or in Europe, most of them have found safe heaven in either Europe or the United States. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting how, you know, people say that, oh, well, you know, the communism in Eastern Europe wasn't real communism, and if you do communism right, it's awesome. But yet we don't see that many people from former communist countries begging to enter China or Vietnam or, you know, other places like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's not where they're heading. They're heading to the evil capitalist places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I, it is interesting, too, to me, that so many, at least the authors that we have shared with the, our audience here, is the fact that they they don't give up. They don't give up their humor. They use humor to... Stay positive and 
and keep pushing ahead until they get a break. As far as I know, Romania is doing much better now with their more open type of government that they have after Ceausescu uh, left. Uh, it seems like a lot of people have have seen better opportunities, and I I, I hope uh, people like Sudo um, had an opportunity to find new ways to excel and become more successful and happier. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, um, this particular author did it by emigrating to the U.S., but, yeah, I think the people left back in Romania are doing a lot better after uh, the departure of Ceausescu, for sure. Yes, and one important thing for the people that might still be trapped in some of these places is that they can give up hope, you know, and to always make an effort to reach out to uh, people coming from the outside and see what they can learn or how they can make their lives better by associating with them. Yeah, yeah, though it is hard, right? I mean, one of the big challenges of engaging with these kind of countries is that they carefully vet their citizens who they allow contact with foreigners, right? So, I mean, it's um, kind of lucky that Sudo was able, through his skiing skills, to get a job as a ski instructor, which apparently was a lot less political than other things, just because you need to have actual skills there or else the tourists are going to know if you're a fake ski instructor who's just there because of your loyalty to the party. But, you know, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. Um, they have to be the most loyal communist to even have a chance to meet with foreigners. So it's like, you know, very rare that people like Sudo or, you know, Theodor Flanta get to a uh, meet a foreigner and sort of challenge the communist ideals instead of just propagandizing for them. That's very true. Uh, a few years back, I took uh, my family to China, visit China, and uh, we had a guide. I asked the guide if, if he was okay, if he had any family or friends so that we could go out and visit. You know, I said, just private people. He couldn't understand why I wanted to just go to a private place and not to some places where tourists would go, you know, some uh, malls or special places. Um, and he asked what I wanted it, why I wanted that. And I said, I just want to see how people live and what they eat and how they react. And, and maybe we can visit and we can bring them presence or something so that we can hang out with him. And he says, he looked at me and said, you know, I can arrange that. Uh, I, there are families that are certified to um, accept foreigners. <laughs> so he, he found a certified uh, lady who lived in a house who actually cooked lunch for us and we showed up at her house and it was a, a very neat experience but i'm i'm sure that was um pretty fairly well orchestrated by the 
by how she uh, could react to us, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can really trust that that certified family was an example of how people live <laughs> typically in China. Yes. Uh, and, I mean, I, I think we take it for granted because we we just show up at somebody's uh, home and, and if they invite us or we can be invited by somebody else and it's no big deal uh, from what we're used to, but that's not the case everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a challenge. You have to be very careful. Like Just like we said, that having contact with people like us can benefit those in communist countries. You have to realize that when you go to one of those places, you can't trust anything you see as authentic, right? Everything's been arranged. Yeah. Everyone who contacts you has been vetted. And, um, you know, it, it's... It's something you just have to keep constantly in your mind when interacting with the, these societies. Exactly. Well, it was definitely a, a great story because it shows that uh, even when things are difficult, that if people try hard enough, they usually can get lucky and and get out or find some other way to alleviate their suffering. And they'll be, they'll the be careful saying usually there, right? Because we only hear from the ones who succeeded. Sadly, oh, I think there's true. thousands of people like Sudo who ended up in imprisoned or, you know, impoverished, losing their jobs because they challenged the communist system. Remember, near oh, the that. end of the book, even Sudo was, you know, uh, taken by the secret police, and he would have had a lot more trouble in his life probably never gotten out of Romania if he hadn't been so lucky to be doing this around the time Ceausescu fell. That is that is so true. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that. We're reading about the um, the successful ones, you know, the ones that yeah. made it. Yeah. And uh, and they, there's probably a ton of them that, that get caught or somehow never make it out. Yeah, that is pretty sad. So let's uh, be in that we're in the in in the spirit of the of the uh, holidays and Christmas and Hanukkah and everything else that we're celebrating. We should at least wish everyone uh, more freedom around the world. Yeah, that'd be a nice uh, Christmas or Hanukkah present. If you want to read more of Sudo's amazing, eye-opening, and occasionally hilarious stories about his early life in Romania, be sure to check out his book, I Tried, available at your favorite online bookseller and linked in the show notes at storiesofcommunism.com. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.